We're making our way through Hebrews. As most of you know, we, we finished the second chapter last week. But before we go into chapter three, I want to go back and there's a, couple of, uh, there's a couple of passages that I want to just sort of camp there for a bit. Uh, we'll, we'll look at one this morning and then next week we'll look at another one. Uh, you know, we, we talked about these things already, but I think, you know, some things just deserve a little bit more attention and so rather than just rushing into the third chapter, I wanted to go back and look at um, what, the, what the author said in the third verse where he refers to our salvation as so great a salvation. And, you know, I really believe that this is true. It, if, we, if we understand just how magnificent is the word I will choose. If we understand how magnificent our salvation is, if we understand the grandness of it and the greatness of it, that in and of itself, it, it, it goes so far into helping us really become the people that God wants us to be. Because when we understand the glory of it and the greatness of it and we're caught up with it and we're consumed by it, it shapes our whole lives. And so what I want to do today is look at just the subject of the greatness of our salvation and, and just looking at it from the perspective of this really is the greatest thing ever. If you were to go around the world today and if you were to poll people as to, uh, you know, what is the greatest thing ever uh, to you, in your, in your opinion, what, what is the greatest thing ever? Well, I think depending on where you were at and what the circumstances were that you were you know, living under, there would be a variety of answers. Uh, if you're in the Middle East, if you're around that region where uh, ISIS is coming in and destroying uh, towns and villages and lives and so forth, I think you know, people would probably say, well, the greatest thing ever would be peace and safety. And you could certainly understand why they would say that. Uh, if you were to go to Nepal, and you were to ask people, what, what would be the greatest thing ever in your opinion? They would probably say, well, food and shelter would be the greatest thing because for the, the moment, that seems to be uh, the great need of the hour there. Uh, for some people, if you ask the question, they would say, well, the greatest thing ever would be uh, reconciliation in a relationship. Maybe a marriage that's uh, broken up or a family that's fallen apart. So to them, the greatest thing ever would be if, if all of this could be put back together, if it could all be restored. And then for others, some might say, well, you know, the greatest thing ever would be an unlimited supply of money. If I just had more money, it would be great. That would be the greatest thing ever. Uh, for others, it would be something even more shallow, like, well, if I could just uh, be more successful or if I could just be more famous or something. So like I'm saying, there, there would be a variety of answers depending on who you were asking. But the reality is this. As good as some of those things might be or as great even as they might be at the present moment for some people under some circumstances, none of them would qualify as the greatest thing ever. But I'll tell you what the greatest thing ever is. The greatest thing ever is salvation. And it's the greatest thing ever. There's nothing that can even compare to it. And that's what I want to show you today, but I want you to notice the way the uh, author here refers to our salvation. He refers to it not simply as great, but he refers to it as so great a salvation. 
Now that reminds me of how Jesus referred to God's love for us in John 3.16. You remember Jesus said, for God, he doesn't simply say for God loved the world, but what does he say? He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in adding just that little word so, what he's really telling us is that God's love for the world is, uh, that love, the word itself is inadequate. God loves the world more than the word love can express. So likewise, when we look at salvation, the author says our salvation is beyond great. It's greater than the word great can even communicate. And so, like I said, if we can get a hold of this, so many of our struggles, so many of, uh, of our battles, so many of our problems, so much of our depression and our frustration and all of that, you know, it, it'll, just, it'll just sort of disappear over time as we, as we are taken up with this great, beyond great, better than great can ever describe Salvation, And so that's what we're going to look at. So great a salvation. Why is our salvation so great according to the author here? Well, there are five reasons. Number one, because of the greatness of our Savior. Number two, because of the greatness of our deliverance. Number three, the greatness of our calling. Number four, the greatness of our destiny. And number five, the greatness of the cost. And so let's look at all five of those. And for the first one, the greatness of our Savior, I'm going to go rather quickly over this because we already focused on these things in a previous message a couple weeks back. So I don't want to, you know, just get bogged down going over the same stuff. But, but I do want to touch on it again because it's obviously very important. And of course, it concerns our Savior. So number one, our, our salvation is so great because our Savior is so great. How great is our Savior? Well, we saw back there in um, verses one through three that he is, first of all, the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. That's how great he is. Jesus owns everything, all that there is. There, there's nothing that, that is that doesn't uh, belong to him. The Father has bequeathed everything to him. He is the Father's heir. So he is the heir of all things. We also uh, understood that he is the creator of all things. It states it here. We consider that. Many passages tell us that very thing. Jesus is the creator. All that there is, every single thing that was made was made by him, and there was not a single thing made that was made apart from him. So our salvation is great. Our Savior is Great, he's the creator. He's the heir, he's the creator. We saw there that he's the sustainer of all things. You remember, maybe we talked about how uh, it's, it's not just these natural laws that keep everything going as they go, that, that keep us uh, functioning as we function, that, that fin finally tune the universe for our, not, not just our existence, but our flourishing. It's all like that because he sustains it currently. This moment, he is the sustaining power behind all of these things. And then we saw also that he is the radiance of God's glory. He is the, he is the express image of his person. Our salvation is great because our Savior is great. 
And because our Savior is great, of course, the salvation that he brings us would, would be equally great. But then secondly, our salvation is great because of the greatness of our deliverance. What, what have we been delivered from? Well, we've been delivered, first of all, from sin. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin. Ultimately, we will be delivered from the presence of sin. What's so great about that? Well, sin is the destructive force in the universe. Sin is the thing that destroys our lives. Sin is the thing that brings us into bondage and into captivity and causes all of the pain and the suffering and the misery and, and all of those things that we experience in the world that are negative things are all rooted back in sin. Our salvation is great because our Savior has dealt with our sin. He has delivered us from sin. So I'm no longer going to have to pay uh, the penalty for my sin. I'm no longer under the bondage of sin. And I can look forward to the day when I will be completely liberated from the presence of sin. So he's dealt with sin, but there's a force that works behind sin, and it's not just a force, it's actually a person. And we've been delivered from the power and the authority of this evil person. This person is Satan, this evil spirit that afflicts humanity, that controls people's lives, that works through sin and comes in and, and does that destructive thing in a person's heart and mind and eventually out into their life and then beyond them. But the power of Satan has been broken. And so we're no longer under his dominion. We've been delivered from that. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and we've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. Jesus said to Paul when he commissioned him to go to preach the gospel. He said, I'm sending you to the Gentiles to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. You know, when we look around the world today and we see some of the things that we're seeing, we see the destruction, we see the suffering, we see the agony, the pain, we see the murder, the rape, the torture, all of these things. You know, Satan is behind that. This is what he does. And, you know, as far back as you want to look in history, when you see the atrocities that have been committed throughout the ages under whatever regime, you can always find the devil's fingerprints there. That, that's who he is. That's what he does. The, those are his trademark activities. We, because of this salvation, we have been delivered from Satan. We've been delivered from his power. And then we've been delivered ultimately from hell. We've been delivered from that judgment. We, we've been uh, liberated from having to pay the penalty for our sin because the wages of sin is death. And the death there that's ultimately being spoken of is separation from God. And what hell is, is it's eternal, conscious separation from God. Sometimes we use the terms eternal conscious torment. Some people hate that. Oh, no, you can't say that. That, that, that just sounds so horrible, and God would never consciously or God would never torment somebody eternally. Well, the torment is the separation from God. 
the living eternally with the knowledge that you could have been saved, you should have been saved, but you made a choice not to be saved. And so you live with that. That's the, I think, part of the, the conscious torment that will take place. But here's the great news. We've been delivered from that. We don't have to live with that fear. I mean, listen, you know, make no mistake about it. There is a hell. And there are people that are going to be there, lots of people, more people than we would ever like to think. You know, some, some say and, and have been saying for quite some time, uh, religion is the opiate of the people. You know, just give people uh, some religion and it just kind of, you know, their fuzzies their mind and they don't think about reality and so forth. But, you know, somebody more recently said, well, the fact of the matter is atheism is the opiate of the people. Because it puts people under this delusion that there's no future judgment, that you can live any way you want, that you can do anything that you want, that you can hurt as many people as you want, you can just trample on anyone and everyone, and you never have to pay for it. Nobody really believes that. When you think of a, a, of a monstrous person like a Hitler, and you think, well, wow, you know, this guy's responsible for the uh, death of almost 100 million people, and at a certain point in time, he just puts a gun to his head, shoots himself, and it's over? Does anybody really believe that it's over for Hitler, that that was it? I don't believe that. I don't think most people believe that. And then some people say, well, of course, you know, well, a Hitler, yeah, sure, you know, I, I guess maybe there is a little bit to that hell thing for people like Hitler, but what about the rest of us? We're all pretty good. Well, no, we're all sort of just little versions of Hitler. Our... <laughs> Our Reich is just smaller, you know? And, and we oppress people and we cause pain and suffering and, and we're selfish and, you know, the, that's the reality of who we are. But we've been saved from that. We've been saved from that sin that causes that kind of thing. We've been saved from the devil who had that uh, grip upon our lives and so we've been saved ultimately from that judgment. We are not going to hell, we're going to heaven. We have been forgiven. And so that in and of itself is something sometimes to just really think about, to really ponder, to just sit and think, Lord, thank you. You know, sometimes I do this, I go back in my mind and remember, because we can forget these things. You know, you, you get so far beyond where you used to be, you can forget your own sinfulness. And sometimes it's good to just go back and remember wow, I, I was really, really lost. I was really, really sinful. And now I'm saved. And all of those sins I committed, I don't have to pay for them because Jesus paid for them. So our salvation is great because our deliverance is great. But our salvation is also great because our calling is great. We have this, this wonderful calling. God didn't just simply pardon our sins he pardoned us, but then he invited us to come and be part, first of all, of his family. What are we called to? We're called to be the children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Actually, the word there is the sons of God. Uh, but, it, but it includes both men and women. But the word sons is intentionally used because in the ancient world, the son was the one who, especially the oldest son, the son was the one who inherited everything from the father. The son was the one who received the, the, the great, you know, the family blessing and all of that, the eldest son. 
And so God wants us to understand that becoming his children means becoming his sons in that, that privileged sense. So we're not just the children of God, but we are maybe better to understand it. We are the privileged children of God. We are the special children of God. So that's our calling. It starts there. It starts with having entered in now to this relationship with God. We have this beautiful relationship with him, this, this parent-child relationship with him, and parent-child in the best possible sense. But we're also called saints. And the word saint, you could uh, look at saint. You could even translate it maybe as a holy one. But, but it's, the idea is to be separated. So God has called us saints, meaning that he separated us from, from sin, death, destruction, the world, all of those things. He separated us from that. But as wonderful it is to be, as it is to be separated from these things, what we're separated to is even more wonderful because he separated us to himself. And we have become to God a precious treasure. That's what the saints are. They're, uh, the saints are God's precious treasure. David said in the Psalms that his, his delight was in the saints of the earth. And that's the heart of God toward his people. They're saints. They're, we are of great value to him. We are this precious treasure to him. We're his sons and daughters. We're saints but we've also been called to be his servants. We are the servants of God. And that is a position of great honor to be a servant. Jesus was known as the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42, behold my servant. And of course we know, and there it says, behold my servant in whom my soul delights. And God calls us to be his servants and he gives us the amazing privilege of serving him of working alongside of him, of entering into this wonderful thing that he's doing, of recreating the universe, starting with individual human beings, uh, transforming them, and he uses us in that process to, to work alongside with him. We become his servants. And then there's one more thing that we become, we become his friends. We become his friends. You know, there's one person in the Bible who stands out who was known as the friend of God. You remember who that was? It was Abraham. Abraham, the friend of God. Guess what? You're in that same category. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, no longer do I call you merely servants, but I call you friends. You're my friends. Because a servant doesn't really know what his master is doing, but I've told you everything. And so Jesus has invited all of us to a friendship with him, into a friendship. You know, you can be a child of somebody but not have a friendship with them. There, there are obviously relationships where uh, people are estranged from one another. Yes, that's my child, or yes, that's my parent. We're biologically connected, but we have no relationship beyond that. Well, we've got the full package. We've got the relationship that's there because we've been born of the Spirit of God, but we've also got that place of, of friendship with him. Think about that. 
the friend of God. And as you think about Abraham's life, as maybe you go back and look in Genesis there, what do you see in this friendship between God and Abraham? You see fellowship. God appeared to Abraham. He spoke to Abraham. He promised to bless him. He provided for him. He gave him direction. He took care of him. All of those kinds of things. Those are all of the things that are implied in friendship. And we have that friendship. Our salvation is great because our calling is great. But then there's also our destiny. The difference between calling and destiny is calling has to do with the present. Destiny has to do with the future. So in the present, we are the children of God. We are his saints. We are his servants. We are his friends. But in the future, there's more to come. What do we have awaiting us in the future? What is our destiny? Our destiny is that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So as we saw there in the beginning, our Savior is great. He's great because he's the heir of all things. Guess what? We are heirs of God just like Jesus is. We are actually joint heirs with Christ. So Christ owns everything. All that there is belongs to him. He has ultimate authority over everything. And you know what? He's invited us in to share that with him. That's what it means to be a joint heir with Christ. We share in all of his wealth. We share in all of his riches. Like Jesus prayed in John 17, oh, Father, I pray that those that you have given me, that they would be with me, that they would see my glory that I had with you before the world was. Jesus is anxious for the time that we are there with him, sharing together in all of this great wealth that belongs to him. He wants to share it with us. Think about that. I mean, just think of the, you know, if the richest person materially in the world uh, got in touch with you and said, you know what? I'm just looking for someone to share this with. You know, I, I've, got, I've got too much money. I, I'll never be able to spend this. And I, I'm just looking for some people that I can bring in and, and make uh, fellow heirs with me of my, of my wealth, of my you know, empire, whatever it is. You would you wouldn't believe it. You'd think, no, that, that, would, that wouldn't even be possible. Who would do that? Well, it probably is highly unlikely that anybody on earth would do that. But <laughs> Jesus, that's exactly. It's like, I, I want them to share in it with me. So we're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Christ. But then included in that is that we are going to reign with him. Our destiny is to reign with him. You know, Think about history. Think about the, the monarchies that have existed throughout history. And, and uh, many nations have lived under kings and queens, you know, the monarchical system. And history, for the most part, uh, is filled with oppressive rulers. Occasionally, you get a good king or queen here uh, once in a while. But we all have uh, kind of the understanding of what it means to reign what it means to be in that, that kind of a position. And even though today most monarchies in the world are, um, they're, they're not functional in, in the sense that they're actually ruling the nation, they're more ornamental at this point. Uh, they, they used to be the ones who actually did rule, but now they've been replaced by parliamentary systems or something like that. But they're still there, right? We all know about 
uh, Queen Elizabeth II. She's still there in Windsor Palace. And, of course, we know even more about her grandson, uh, Prince William, and Kate. And, you know, think about it, though. I mean, all, all William and Kate got to do is, you know, get on a plane and come to the United States, and everybody's going crazy. Wow! The prince and the princess, they're here. And my point is, you know, we get it. When you think of royalty, you realize that that is privilege. Jesus says, we're going to reign with him. We are going to be the royalty in the new kingdom that he's establishing. His sons, his daughters are going to be the ones to reign with him. Listen to what it says in Revelation. And I saw the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Our salvation is great because our destiny is great. Where are we going? We're going to reign with Christ over the earth. We, we are the heirs. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the first few words that he said, he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's going to give the earth to his followers. The earth is his and everything in it. He's going to give it to us. And we will reign with him forever and ever. This all of this is part of our salvation. But here's the question. Do we realize it? I mean, do we stop and ponder this? Do we take the time? Or are we just so busy with life and everything else? And I have to confess that sometimes I am. I'm so busy with all of these other things. And, and you know, I'm a pastor, so my life is usually consists of doing things that are related to Christ and the ministry. But that doesn't exempt me from the need to stop and really contemplate these things. But sometimes I don't. I, I'm too busy. And you know, sometimes our attitude is say, oh yeah, I'm saved. Are you, are you, uh, are you saved? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm saved, yeah. Been saved a few years. You know, if, if, that's our, if that's our attitude, we have either lost it or maybe we never grasp the wonder of our salvation. Our salvation should always be an amazing thing to us. We should always respond with, yes, I'm saved. Oh, man, I can't believe I'm saved. I'm so thankful that I'm saved. And so if I lack that wonder, if I lack that, that, that excitement and that praise, at the, just even at the very thought of my salvation, what does it say about me? It says, I don't realize how great a salvation I have. I don't realize that it's greater than great. And if I'm neglecting my salvation because all of these other things seem more important, then I don't know what the greatest thing ever really is. Because none of those things are the greatest thing ever. The greatest thing ever is this. This is it. We have it. We have the greatest thing ever. And since we have the greatest thing ever, how is it that we could get so wrapped up and so preoccupied 
with, with these other lesser things. The greatness of our salvation. There's one more point, as I mentioned, and this is the final one. Our salvation is great because the cost was great. You know, we think of salvation as the free gift of God, and rightfully so. It is the free gift of God. But listen, it cost somebody something. And who was that somebody? It cost Jesus Christ his life. It cost him his life to save you and to save me. That's the great cost. The great cost is the blood, the precious blood of Christ. Like Peter says, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Oh, we put such a priority on silver and gold, especially gold. But those are corruptible things. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Precious, you know, something is determined precious. They, gold is a precious metal, right? And why, why is something deemed precious? It's deemed precious because it's rare. You can't just go out and find gold nuggets lying around in a field somewhere. Well, the blood of Christ is precious. It's rare. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it in all of the, of the universe and beyond. It is the most precious thing. And that's what we were redeemed with. The cost was great. And like I was saying, and believe me, I'm preaching to myself here. You know, we need to stop and think about these things. It's easy to, to get this stuff in our heads and to get a little bit of information about it and then to sort of settle for that little bit of information. But... We need to keep thinking about these things. We need to keep going deeper in our understanding of these things. You know, Paul the Apostle said to the church in Rome, he said that he was anxious to come to them. And listen to this. He said he wanted to come and he wanted to preach the gospel to them. Now, that's a little bit perplexing because when you think usually of preaching the gospel to somebody, you usually think of preaching it to somebody who's yet... Uh, unsaved, because that's how people get saved, right? They hear the gospel, and then they, that's how they'll receive Christ. So a lot of times when we talk about preaching, we think of it in terms of unbelievers. But Paul is not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the saints in Rome, and he says, I want to come to you, and I want to preach the gospel. What did he mean by that? This is what he meant. They knew the, the basic historical facts of the death of Jesus on the cross for our sin and of uh, you know, the, the, uh, the prophetic scriptures and the promises and the resurrection. They knew those facts, but what Paul is saying is, I wanna come to you and I want to teach you, I wanna preach to you the full implication of all those facts. You see, there's, there's a lot behind these facts. Yes, Jesus died on a cross for our sin. Yes, he rose from the dead. But there's all kinds of details behind the scene that we need to understand. That's what the epistle to the Romans is. Paul says, I want to come to you and preach it. Until I get there, I'm going to write some of these things out. And that's what he does. But for ourselves, you know, it's good for us to have the gospel regularly preached to us. It's good for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. To go back and rehearse those things. I mean, and, and think about it just in terms of these five points that we're looking at here today. 
to just stop and think about. Now, we're rushing through this because we're limited in our time, right? But, you know, think about each one of these points, the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of our deliverance, the greatness of our calling, the greatness of our destiny, the greatness of the cost. You could take every one of those, those points, and you could spend a whole week just meditating on each individual point, couldn't you? You could take a whole year and meditate on each individual point. Because this stuff is unfathomable. But the reality is this. The more I get this into me, the more this becomes um, just where my mind goes, the more this becomes my obsession. You know, everybody's got an obsession. Have you noticed that? You know, people get obsessed about all kinds of things. And you know what they're obsessed about because that's the thing that they incessantly talk about. They're excited about something. They're talking about something. There's something that drives them. There's something that they're passionate about. There's something that they always want to talk about when you see them. Well, for us, that should be our salvation. That's where we should be at, that we, we are, these things are at the forefront of our heart and mind. And as we meditate on them, as we go into God's word, and as we take those passages, and as we read through them, maybe as we take the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and we just go and meditate. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. You know, as you just think, think about that. Or maybe the 22nd Psalm, which is obviously a similar Psalm of, of the suffering of Jesus. But then you've got those passages in uh, different places in Isaiah, like, like the 11th chapter of Isaiah, or the 35th chapter of Isaiah, or the 66th chapter of Isaiah, where it's the, the picture of, the, of this, um, our destiny, the, the picture of the new kingdom that we're going to be ruling and reigning in, and all of the beauty of that. Or, you know, just focusing in on, on God's love. And we do that as we, as we take the time to engage in the scriptures. Or we get uh, good, you know, reading material, good books and things where, where people have been able to take these truths. And because God's gifted them, you know, maybe with like a great imagination, they can take these, these truths and they can put them in different forms that help us to appreciate even more sometimes what it is that we're being told. You know, I, I think it was last week, right, when I, I was quoting from C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia with the passage here in uh, Hebrews 2.14, inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, he likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Remember that, and I shared the, the part from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where, where Aslan explains the deeper magic where, you know, he dies for the innocent victim because he has committed no treachery and all that. And, you know, here's Lewis, who's brilliant, who has this amazing imagination, who's able to, to create this fictional character out of, of his understanding of Christ and then put it in a way... That a, that a little child could read it and go, wow, Aslan is amazing. But then realizing that Aslan is Jesus. So it's these kinds of things that we need to give ourselves to. And this brings us to the final point. Because our salvation is so great, we have a great responsibility. And that's what 
the author reminded us of there. Remember, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away. We, we don't want to drift away from these things. Because in drifting away from them and in losing the wonder of them, we lose everything else. Once we lose the wonder of this, once my salvation becomes just sort of mundane, you know, kind of old hat, yeah, yeah, I've been saved for 25 years, and you, know, you might have had an experience way back when, but now it's just kind of, it's just a routine. You do the thing, you go to church, you ha- even maybe have a devotion. <laughs> you read a few verses in your Bible every day, but it, but it no longer does what it used to do. What's happened? There's a drifting that's taken place. And how do we get back? We need to remember our salvation is the greatest thing that there is. There's nothing greater. There's nothing to be compared to it. And since it's going to go on into eternity, we need to invest everything we have now for then. I mean, isn't that what investing is about, right? When somebody talks about investing, you're, you're doing something right now that is going to uh, pay off in the future. So what is our future? Well, we have a future with God in eternity. What are we to do right now? We're to invest in that. What do we often do now? We're investing in the wrong things. We're taken up with all of the things of the world that have maybe some temporary benefit, but they don't have the eternal value. And of course, we all have responsibilities and things. I'm not suggesting that we neglect those kinds of things, but it's the other things when we do have the free time or we could make the time, what do I do then? What am I investing in then? Am I investing in spiritual things? Am I uh, going deeper in my understanding of the greatness of this salvation? Am I preparing my life for the things that God has ahead, not just ahead in this world, but ahead in eternity? So great a salvation means it's a great responsibility as well. And so we need to give the more earnest heed, and that's what I want to encourage you to do today. But remember this. Just, just know this. I've said it many times already, but just know this. This is the greatest thing ever. Nothing but nothing compares with it. Nothing. There's not, not even a close second. There's nothing that compares to it. Everything that, that humanity longs for, everything that people hope for, all, you know, like, like that, like that uh, Christmas hymn said, O little town of Bethlehem. Remember what it said about what was happening there that night, the birth of Jesus? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's it. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is uh, our great salvation. And the more we give ourselves to him and this salvation, this is what life is about. And then all of the other aspects of life naturally work themselves out together because God wants us to be blessed. He wants us to have good relationships. He wants us to have blessed families. He wants our children to follow him and be blessed. He wants us to be taken care of. He wants all of those things for us. He promises to bless 
those who seek him. And this is what it comes down to, the realization of how great a salvation we have. If I know how great it is, I won't neglect it. If I neglect it, I've lost sight of that. God help us. If we've lost sight, to get it back. If we never had it, Lord, give it to me today. Lord, thank you for this amazing thing called salvation that even though we're trying our best to do it justice in describing it, Lord, we can't even do that. I think of the words of Paul, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it hasn't entered the hearts of men the things that you have prepared for those who love you. Lord, we, we can't even think great enough to comprehend this stuff. But Lord, you reveal these things to us by your spirit. And oh, how we thank you for that today. And so Lord, would you do that? Would you just bring us a fresh excitement, a fresh perspective, a fresh understanding, a fresh reminder that we and we alone, we have the greatest thing ever. May we not lose sight of that, Lord. And Lord, I would just pray for anyone today that's with us that, that is a believer, that is saved. But the wonder of it all, the magnificence of it all, the glory of it all has, has waned. It's, it's no longer that, that thing that's first and foremost. Lord, would you touch and would you bring back the wonder and the glory Lord, and perhaps it's because other things have come in and like the, the tares and the wheat choking out the seed. Lord, untangle us from the world and the things that, that uh, darken your glory. And Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth will grow dim in the light of his glory and grace, Lord. That's our heart. That's our prayer today. If that's you today and you've lost the excitement about your salvation, you've lost the wonder and you want to get it back, just pray with me. Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Restore to us, Lord, the glory, the magnificence. Turn our hearts away from those things that detract from that. And may they be set upon you.